The parables of Jesus are among the most popular elements of the Bible. But what are the deeper stories behind them, and how do they relate to the modern day? Welcome to the Parables podcast series, produced by the Archdiocese of Brisbane. In this seven-part series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge takes us deeper into these stories. Thank you for joining us for the Parables Podcasts. Welcome to this last of these podcasts in which we've been exploring the fascinating and powerful world of the parables of Jesus. We've been understanding the parables as little narrative metaphors that seek to subvert conventional perceptions and experiences of the kingdom of God in order to bring to birth new and brilliant perceptions and experiences. In other words, to create new possibilities. For this last podcast, I want to turn to the parable that's often called the parable of the great banquet, which is found in the version that I shall take in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 24. You may want to have the text in front of you. It always helps. So Luke 14, 12 to 24. A very similar version, though not identical, but similar version of the same parable is found in Matthew 22, 1 to 10. And it's an interesting task just to to compare the two. Most of the parables that we, all of the parables, in fact, that we have been exploring are taken from Luke and Matthew because, as I've said in the introductory podcast, the parables are found in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, but not in the gospel of John. The reasons for that are interesting, but can't delay us here. Now, the theme of the banquet is one that pervades the whole of Scripture. In fact, you could argue, really, that that the whole of Scripture moves from one banquet to another because the Bible, in a very real sense, begins with the Exodus, and at the heart of the Exodus there is that banquet, that meal, that feast called the Passover that will, again, course through the whole of Scripture but is found initially in the book of Exodus, So we begin in one sense with that banquet, the banquet of the Passover, and the Christian Bible then moves eventually to the Messianic banquet, the eschatological banquet, the marriage feast of the Lamb, found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. So from the Passover, we move to the prophetic literature, where again the theme of the banquet is is very central, The great text of Isaiah 25 comes to mind. On that mountain, the Lord of hosts will prepare a banquet of the finest food and the best of wines and remove the mourning veil from the peoples. It's a text that's often read at funerals and it's a magnificent text that shows that the theme of the banquet provided by God is very central to the prophetic literature. The same theme is found after the exile in what they call the Second Temple period And then even into the New Testament period in the rabbinic literature, you find it as well. So so it's a a theme that takes us to the heart of biblical religion and focuses upon the hospitality of God. And in this parable of the great banquet, that is certainly one of the most central themes. The hospitality of God, which in the end looks very different from human hospitality. It's the difference between human hospitality is two-way traffic, as we shall see, 
and the hospitality of God as all grace. In other words, it's one-way traffic. It's all gift. Now, Jesus, we are told at the beginning of chapter 14 of Luke, has been invited to dine at the house of a ruler who belongs to the Pharisees. So this is clearly a rich and powerful and deeply religious person who has invited Jesus to dine. And again, keeping in mind the, uh, the very special understanding and experience of hospitality that was and still is common to the Middle East. Hospitality is a very, very important thing in the Middle East, always was. In part, it seems to have gone back to to the desert days and the desert experience where if there wasn't hospitality offered to travellers, it was a matter of life and death. But even when the culture became more urbanised, that same sense of the sacred duty of hospitality persisted in Middle Eastern cultures, and it still does. Uh, Extraordinary hospitality in the Middle East. Now, Jesus is invited to dine... But the question is, why? And the answer is given to us immediately because we're told they were watching him. In other words, they're out to test Jesus. I mean, the pressure is mounting on Jesus by the time we get to chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel. They're out to get him and they need a reason to get him. And they're not just trying to get him for lunch. The purpose is altogether darker than that. So what we find immediately is a kind of a false hospitality. The, the ruler of the Pharisee party has invited Jesus, but not out of a genuine hospitality. He's testing Jesus, watching him, as all of them are. So it's a kind of false hospitality. That's the first thing. Now, the question is, who was there? Almost certainly, even though we don't have a guest list, But the the protocols of the culture would ensure that the Pharisee would have invited his social equals. Now, these are those who are called in verse 12, your friends, your brothers and relations. So his social equals, there would have been other members of the Pharisee party. There would have been other people who uh, had considerable power and authority So they would have been the social equals of the host, his friends, his brothers, his relations, and so on, members of his own class. Now, this was the common understanding. You invited only your social equals and you invited them in order to get something in return. So there was a kind of a, almost a contractual understanding of hospitality in this kind of setting. In other words, the logic underlying the whole meal, the banquet, is the logic that's captured in the Latin tag do ut des, which means I give so that you give. In other words, I give you the gift of my hospitality. I invite you to the great banquet. But it's not without... uh, interest as it were. I invite you so that you invite me. I give you something, the gift of my hospitality, so that you in turn give me the gift of your hospitality. So it's, it's a way of doing a deal. And the whole of this, this culture, this society was grounded upon that logic. It's the logic just by the way of pagan religion, 
Now, Phariseeism wasn't that, but at the heart of pagan religion, there is precisely the logic of do or des. For instance, within pagan religion, if I offer sacrifice to God or the gods, it's in order to get something from the God or the gods. I give so that the God gives to me, so that in the end, the focus is upon me, not the other. I'm doing a deal and I want a return on my investment. So it is that sense of investing in order to get a return. It's a bit like foreign aid that countries will offer to uh, poorer countries. Australia does this, many other countries do it, obviously. But it's not uh, uninterested in the sense that foreign aid is offered to another country in order to cultivate influence. In other words, to get a return on the investment. Now, faced with that kind of logic here at the meal table, Jesus takes that logic and turns it on its head, puts a bomb under it. Because in verse 12, this is what we hear. When you give a dinner or a banquet, as this Pharisee has done, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your kinsmen or your neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Well, this is a completely different logic. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And the words that Jesus speaks here must have been truly shocking or or, uh, incomprehensible to his host and, and those at table with him. Jesus goes on to say, when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. I mean, these are the outcasts. These are the nobodies uh, stricken and stricken probably in the common understanding of the time because they were somehow sinful. That their poverty, the fact that they're crippled and lame and blind uh, may well be the punishment of sin. So invite those people, says Jesus, and then you will be blessed. Why will you be blessed? because they can't repay you. So here he puts a bomb under that sense of doing the deal, making an investment, two-way traffic. Invite them precisely because they can't repay you. But he goes on to say, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, God will do the repaying. You will get a return, but in fact it won't be from those you invite, it will be from God, who is the provider of real hospitality and the only one who can provide a real return on any kind of investment. Now, having spoken those shocking words, one of those at table with him says, we're told, says to Jesus, blessed are those who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, again, they would have presumed that they were those, you know, they were the virtuous people and they would have been the ones eating bread in the kingdom of God. That's not the way that Jesus sees it, as you'll go on to say in the parable proper. So there is the exclamation from the dinner guest, blessed are those who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But the real question that Jesus is putting on the table to all of those there is, Who will eat bread in the kingdom of God? And this is the point at which the parable begins to turn seriously strange 
Now again, remember I've said that all the parables of Jesus begin in an ordinary world, the world that we all know, being invited to dinner, a dinner party, all that sort of thing. The ordinary world of common human experience and then the parable turns strange. The extraordinary is born at the heart of the ordinary and that, I've said, is the kingdom moment. And that's what's um, emerging now in the text. So he says a man gave a great banquet. Well, in fact, the, the Pharisee has given a great banquet, but this banquet will turn out to be very different than the one, the false hospitality that the Pharisee is offering. Many are invited to this great banquet and the process of invitation at this time was well known and you see it here in the parable. Invitations are sent out to many, we're told, and the replies would have come back because the host would have needed to know how many to cater for. So many were invited and all seem to have said, yes, they will come. They have accepted the invitation. But then at this time and in this culture, there was a second stage of the process because once the great banquet was in fact ready, the servants were sent out again to make the summons. Now, remember, this was a time when people didn't necessarily have calendars and didn't have watches on their wrists. So they needed a reminder that it was the time, the day and the time for the feast. So the servants went out and said, now is the time for you to come to the feast. So there was the initial invitation and then a second summons. Now, what's happened here, it seems, and this is strange, those who initially said yes, all of them, now this is weird, all of those, the many we were told, who said yes initially, now begin to make excuses and say no. Now, we're given three excuses as examples of the many. Now, when you look at these excuses, the first of them says, oh, look, I've brought a field and I have to go and see it, so I can't come. The second says, oh, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go and try them out. So I'm sorry, but I can't come, even though I accepted the invitation. And then the third one says, oh, look, I've married a wife and can't come, um, so I'm sorry. I, I, I said yes, but now I have to say no. Now, each of those three reasons can seem comprehensible, can seem kind of reasonable, each of the excuses. But in fact, when you push it a little more closely the excuses could hardly be more lame. For example, do you ever or would anyone buy land without actually seeing it? I guess you could, but they wouldn't have had catalogues and photographs and all that sort of thing that we might have. So there's the absurdity of buying land, big investment, without actually seeing the land beforehand. Doesn't make sense. Uh, then again, five yoke of oxen. Would you buy five yoke of oxen without trying them out first? Or at least having a look at them. But it seems, again, a reasonable excuse that turns out to be incredibly lame, doesn't make sense. And then similarly with the third excuse, I've, I've married a wife. Well, when the invitation came initially, 
this person would surely have known that the wedding was coming. I mean, they, they, they didn't do quick-fire weddings in those days. So the, the invitee would have known that the wedding was coming. Why then did he accept the invitation in the first place? So there's something very strange going on. Now, remember that these are just three examples of the many who initially said yes and then said no. What seems to have happened, if you try and put it all together, is that those invited actually close ranks against the host, the, the one who's offered the invitation, in order to shame him. And again, this was a culture in which shame was a big factor and this would have been deeply shaming for the host. So the only conclusion, when you see how lame the excuses are and how universal the rejection is, the only explanation is they seem to have closed ranks against him in order to shame him. And we're not told why this is. And the more you, you ask the question, well, why, the less you come to an answer. Now, in all of this, clearly the parable is dealing with the mystery of the rejection of Jesus that will culminate in his death. I mean, why did they reject Jesus so violently and so totally? Why was it that they couldn't forgive Jesus for forgiving? That was at the heart of the rejection. Uh, why do they want to kill Jesus when he heals? They want to kill him because he heals. They want to silence Jesus because he speaks the prophetic word, the word of God. They want to exclude Jesus because he includes everybody. So at this point, you are dealing with the, the deep mystery of the rejection of Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Seen at a very superficial level, you can kind of explain it perhaps like these seemingly reasonable excuses that turn out to be incredibly lame. Similarly, with the rejection of Jesus, the more you push it, the more mysterious and baffling it becomes. I mean, as one commentator has said, God is more willing to save sinners than, than sinners are to be saved. I mean, who can work that out? I mean, it touches upon the kind of suicidal impulse in every human being that the one thing we most want and the one thing we most need is the one thing we most resist and, in the end, the one thing we most reject. Now, who can work this out? But that's what this parable is taking us into, this whole mystery of rejection. Now, understandably, because of the shaming, and again, the very public shaming of the host, the host is angry, we're told. And you don't understand the anger unless you understand the shame and the kind of pressure, the public pressure that he is facing. And it's also this anger that, that underlies that determination then to go on with the banquet, but on completely different terms. And there's an urgency about it. He says to the servant he sends out, compel the, the new invitees if you have to, because some of those who are going to be invited now would have been seriously uncomfortable with the kind of invitation that came their way. This wasn't their world, being invited to a great banquet put on by someone who was seriously important or rich or powerful. Now, as a result of the anger, which itself is the result of the shaming, 
The host sends out, first of all, his servants to make a sweep through the town where he says, go into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. There we have that formula again. So first of all, a sweep through the city of the outsiders and the sinners, bring them in, bring them in. They're not deserving, that doesn't matter. They're not worthy, that doesn't matter. They're not the same class, that doesn't matter. And all of this by way of overturning that logic of do or des, I give so that you give. It's not two-way traffic. In all of this, there's a snub to the upper class who, who refused the invitation in the end and a snub to the whole system underlying the invitation to dine that came to Jesus. The whole system itself is snubbed in what the host is doing now. Not only is there a sweep through the, the town, but even more extraordinarily, out into the countryside, a second sweep. Go to the highways and hedges and, and out into the countryside where there would have been even more uh, notable outsiders who are brought inside to the banquet. And then in an extraordinary touch at the end, the host says, I tell you, none of those invited shall taste my banquet. Now, why does the host say not one of them will taste the banquet? Because they all refused. It seems extreme when you hear it, first of all, from the lips of Jesus. But remember, they all accepted initially and then they all said, no, I'm sorry, I can't come. So by their own decision, none of them will taste the banquet and implicitly the banquet of the kingdom of God. So those who reject, in the end, reject themselves. I mean, this is another aspect of the mystery of rejection. It ends up being a kind of self-rejection. No one is excluded from the banquet of the kingdom of God unless they freely exclude themselves. And this again is a theme in the New Testament. Now I have said that the parables of Jesus all begin in the ordinary world and we see it here now. Uh, banqueting, feasting, hospitality, all of these things were very much part of the culture uh, then and they are, albeit in different forms, in the cultures that we know. So we start in the ordinary human world. In other words, to find the kingdom of God, you don't have to go into some phantasmagoric world, some other world. You've just got to stay right where you are in the ordinary world and allow the extraordinary to be born precisely there. The extraordinary is born, the kingdom moment arrives, when the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame who can't repay you are invited into this great banquet uh, and who obviously they come, albeit some of them perhaps compelled because they would have been so uncomfortable at the thought of coming to the great banquet. So, so these, the new invitees, th this is the extraordinary moment in which the kingdom of God in Jesus's perception of it appears. And it, it's, it's a moment in which the status quo is overturned. And this again is typical of the Gospel of Luke that has as its kind of cleft sign the Magnificat placed on the lips of Mary. Put down the mighty from their thrones and raise the lowly 
uh, and so on. Fill the hungry with good things, send the rich away empty. There's the keynote of of Luke's gospel, and you find it classically demonstrated here. Now, the other thing I've said is that all the parables of Jesus are unfinished, and this one certainly is. And they're unfinished precisely because they look to our response. You, You can't read these parables with any kind of attention or commitment without facing the question, what about you? In other words... What kind of hospitality do you take on board? Is it false hospitality? Is it the hospitality understood merely as an investment, kind of doing a deal, two-way traffic? Or are you, am I, prepared to take on board the hospitality of God, which is very, very different, because unless we take on the hospitality of God, in the end we end up excluding ourselves from the banquet of the kingdom of God. So are we prepared to say yes to true hospitality or are we prepared just to nestle into the very destructive world of false hospitality? At that point, we can rest our exploration. Is it finished? Absolutely not. In a sense, each of these podcasts has been a raid on the unspeakable. The parables of Jesus never finish and the interpretation of them will never finish because, in a sense... The parables live by interpretation and can only be finished over and over again in the life of individuals like you and me or in the life of communities that listen to the word in these parables and take it on board. So thanks to all of you, whoever you are, wherever you might be. Thanks for being part of the journey. And I can only hope that what I have offered here can help you to enter more deeply into not only an understanding of the kingdom of God as Jesus teaches it, but much more importantly, an experience of the kingdom of God, which in the end takes us to the heart of what it means to be truly human, but also the heart of what it means to be divine. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parables podcast series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the Archdiocese of Brisbane on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, or subscribe for more podcasts on iTunes or Spotify.